All right, so today we're going we're gonna to basically answer, th- uh, well, I, I answer one basic question, what do babies do to people? Um, and I have three answers, but there's many more. And uh, so it, within the reading of this, well, this section of the book, there, there's basically kind of two uh, events that happen in Jennifer's life, and one is having a baby. Actually, three, I'm sorry, three things, but we're only going to talk about the first one. So having a baby, her husband opening or starting this business, and then uh, picking up this book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. We'll, we'll, we'll examine that aspect next week uh, a little bit more. Well, actually, yeah, not more, just we just will, because we're not going to talk about it today. All right, um, anyways, so what were your thoughts on this section of reading just initial thoughts. Just wanna, what you think about it? I mean, she's a little paranoid when it comes to that cat. <laughs> she's a little paranoid. She's got a little craziness in her. Yeah, right. That, that's important actually because that that actually is a, uh, yeah, overprotective. Yeah, Ollie. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, yeah, so my next question would be if, you know, those who have any babies, uh, you know, have, has that ever happened? Elizabeth. Yeah, right, mortality. Um, and it, was, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily mortality only, but it was what kind of mortality? Uh, uh, yeah, no, yeah, the, I don't think she actually even asked her question about heaven, though, but, like, yeah, Nancy said it, meaninglessness, what's the point? And that, that was the, what she really struggled with. She has a quote by Bernard Russell, kind of discussing that. Has anyone ever seen the movie 28 Days? Sandra Bullock. Yes, Okay. For this, uh, it's about uh, she's an alcoholic, goes to uh, 28 days of therapy out in the woods. And she has this uh, boyfriend, Jasper. He's a terrible influence on her. And he sneaks into, well, I, not, it's a kind of like family come visit day. I don't know, sometime in the 28 days. And she, uh, so he takes her out on a boat and he pulls out this a bottle of gin or something. I don't know what it was. Vodka, okay. And um, he's, he, it's this, this amazing thing. She's like, don't, you know, why did you do this, yada, yada, yada. And he, he basically goes on to say that life is meaningless, and some people try to numb the meaningless of, of life with children, with money, and some people just do it by getting wasted. And, of course, you know, his is the third option. But his tirade is uh, very, very interesting because... He, his character is purely materialistic. And as Jennifer articulated, there is a, a, a science and materialism often go together. Not always, though. I mean, she kind of made that point, too. But her worldview was kind of, you know, what you see is what you get, what you touch is real, you know, what you can't touch is not real. And of course, 
if you see your world just through by, you know, just by that purely kind of materialistic understanding, material meaning like, you know, stuff, not like the, you love money more than anything, yeah, that kind of thing, is um, then there's no, there's, strictly speaking, there's no meaning. It doesn't mean anything. And so your appetites, your passions, then will guide what you do. Um, and she kind of comes to the realization that's not such a great worldview. Now that actually also influences, she has that worldview, but this character in 28 Days, she's not so far gone. She's not immoral, in a sense. But she has a very, she has a made-up world she lives in. All right, any other thoughts? That's okay, because we, uh... all right, on page 68, uh, there's a quote there. If the past few months in the grinder of the new parenthood and new business ownership had taught me anything, it was that I didn't have it all figured out. Um, and that's a very important place for her. Is uh, how, how would you, uh, someone who acknowledges that I don't have everything figured out? What would you? How would you describe that person? Seeker. Seeker? Realistic. Oh, realistic, wise. Yeah, sure. When you admit that you don't have everything figured out, how, I mean, how would people, I mean, it's, it's a sign of humility. Yeah. Vulnerable, and she actually uses that word vulnerable in the, in the book, and I can't remember which page, but I think she does. All right, this is very, this is, this is a, uh, so within her world, she's vulnerable, she's humble on a, on a certain level. Uh, she but through vulnerability and humbleness, there's a certain sense of wisdom in the whole thing. She's starting to, the fact that she doesn't have it figured out is like the first step to figuring things out, in a sense. So that, that's important, and that's, you know, that's what the baby did for her. She was no longer in control, which, of course, is pr- primarily her made-up world. I was going to call it fictionalized world, but I, I don't know if that's it's kind of a hard word to say. Made-up world. Her, uh, so the baby actually causes her to see reality, which I think Jan said, you know, it's the, it, she's a real person now. Um, and on page 60, she actually uses that, uh, perhaps the inner agony that had erupted since Donald's birth had been caused by the friction of trying to jam the square peg of atheism into the round hole of reality. So it, it, it's a, it's she, she's the baby, her baby, Donald, I, I guess I can call him by his name. Donald is a, actually just undermines her fictionalized world. And her fictionalized world was primarily, uh, she lived in a world what, where babies didn't even exist. Now, uh, she, so I'm going to kind of localize her world. She was living in Lincoln Park or maybe the Gold Coast living in Trump Towers, heading out to Blackbird every night along with Spiaga or whatever fancy restaurant. Um, Spago or Spiaga, I don't know, whatever. The word for beach, right? I think it's in Italian. Uh, uh, you know, whatever. So she's, she's living this life, you know. And, if you know, actually it was kind of funny because um, I took some high school kids down to Lincoln Park two weekends ago, 
and it was not the center of kind of the hip Lincoln Park area, but it was it was kind of around there, and it was after the Packer Bear game. So you had all these people going into the the bars. I mean, the they, the bars were open for post party. Now, of course, thousands of people walking down the street. And I see, I happened to notice this because I, I was thinking about this book you know, a couple weeks ago. And lo and behold, what was strangely missing? Yes, kids. Now, there was actually uh, a few families. I mean, I was like, oh, hey, there's a kid right here. And it was like a mom and dad pushing a little stroller. Like it was a baby. But I didn't see like any... Actually, I saw one family walking down the street, and they were... Yeah, they were just they were having a good time. But, um, yeah, but, I mean, 999 of them were adults. And obviously, if you went into the bars, you wouldn't see the children. I saw the children on the streets or the sidewalks. All right, so, so that is, it's one of those things where, um, and of course now we know within that world it is, it is made up because you can't live in a world without children. Because what will happen? It ends. <laughs> it ends. I mean, it's kind of simple, right? Um, now, the thing is, though, is that. Uh, she struggles with her kind of like all this stuff that's happening inside her and her scientific worldview or her, her kind of uh, rationalistic worldview. She struggles with it because she says, well, of course, I have this uh, kind of these feelings for my child because, I, you know, I'm programmed to want to perpetuate the, the species. But, of course, that answer leaves her what? You know, questioning still. It doesn't, it's not a good answer. Because that doesn't explain things. But, um, but uh, of course, on a certain level, you, you have to have children just to exist as a, as a race. Now, I, there was way too many movies. So uh, anybody ever see, this is actually a book written by a Christian but made into a movie that doesn't really have too many Christian overtones, but uh, Children of Men with Owen, uh, Clive Owen. Yeah. Yes. There's no more children in the world. Women can't have babies. There's no more babies because of uh, whatever, post-apocalyptic sickness or something. But lo and behold, there's a pregnant woman in this world. And so people want her. And this man uh, is set out to uh, protect her and save her from the bad guys, in a sense. But, I mean, that's just a very basic premise, right? What would happen if the world didn't have children? What kind of world would we live in? Well... It'd be a made-up world, and it would be, it's a, if you watch that movie, it's, it's a dreary, very dreary, dreary and it's, a, it's kind of a gray world, not very colorful, not much life happening. All right, so, but the thing is, though, she is, what, masking her inner agony with what? You know, going to the right restaurants, wearing the right clothes, flying all over the place, you know, in San Francisco and all this great stuff. Which, of course, on the surface sounds very attractive for a lot of people, especially young people. But she comes to the realize that it's, it's not, that's not, like, real. That's a, that's a very peculiar life. And in the end, it won't actually mean anything. So it's kind of a profound circumstance. 
which you know hopefully makes you feel better living in Wheaton and not in Lincoln Park. All right, it occurred to me that this was possibly the defining event of the human experience, and I had never ever come close to it before. That's a, that's a pretty profound statement. Whether you've actually had children, I haven't had a child physically. You know, I haven't birthed anything. So I mean, this is all kind of abstract. I've seen it done, <laughs> but I haven't done it. But um, uh, I, it, I, whether it's the defining event of human existence is, I don't know. But um, it's, a, it's a pretty pr- pr- profound event. And even if you've never had children, if you've had nieces or nephews or friends who've had little children, you realize that life has changed for everybody. <laughs> for better or for worse, something has happened. And... What's the defining event in that relationship, for better or for worse? You know, it's, it's the baby that comes around. Now, the reason why I bring this all up is, is that I, it's one of these things that I think everyone has, has experienced, but in reading her story, hopefully you kind of internalize it and ask yourself, have I had these circumstances in my life? And have we just gone through the motions in a sense, or have we spent time to say to ourselves, whoa, Maybe I've had these emotions, maybe I've had those feelings, but I've actually haven't articulated them. And in reading her story, maybe you've had that opportunity to now. Because I, I, re- I read it, and I was kind of, again, for, for a guy, I was impacted by reading her story. So, so how did her baby uh, cause her to question her made-up world? How, you know, what, what do you think? <laughs> Right. Yep. The child she has and the child she un, uncontrollably uh, loves. She can't not love this baby. And so if she loves this baby, can she actually say, well, ah, it's, it's just a, well, I think she says a pile of atoms or something like that. Mm-hmm. She there was more to life than the atoms that made up our bodies, I was sure. Yes. Whoa, that's great. Now, of course, who had control in her made-up world? She did, right? I mean... She thought she did. Or at least she thought she did. She And, of course, then who didn't have control in the real world? So the, the fact was the real world was a place of, of, for her, like she had to surrender to it. Humility, uh, and and so your answers to to the previous question were all spot on. Jan. I think the other thing that plays into this is that she basically had been told she probably couldn't have children. Right. And that had to play into this, too, because... You know, if you as a woman, as a woman, had been told that you can't have kids... She wasn't told that in her way. Well, it was, but that's okay. She did have a condition that had questions that complicated her. That she at one point the doctor... I know, but she didn't know about yeah. No, but Jan's right, though. She's just ahead of the game. Yeah, finish your, finish your, your statement, though, Jan, because that's, that's, that's really important. Yeah. That's right. Um, now, the thing is, though, this is very important. 
So actually, with Janice, so she had this condition when she got pregnant that complicated pregnancy, but it wasn't until later where the doctor said, you don't have any more kids. And she just was like, she had them. The thing was, though, about this whole scenario was the reality that, um, uh, you know, she was surprised by the whole thing. This baby comes along later, boom, baby shows up. Now, in rea- so this is reality. Many of the young people these days say, well, I'm going to get married, I'm going to spend, you know, seven, seven years building a career, yada, yada, yada. And then, oh, then I will have kids. Now, those statements, is that a, based on kind of how we understand the made-up world and the real world from the book, that's all made up. That's not real. And now, of course, we, of course, feel very in control of the whole situation, and to a certain extent we are, but the reality is, the fundamental point, though, and Jennifer Fulwire eventually gets to this point, is that, She's really not in control, even though she has her plans about stuff. And I think last year we talked about the idol of the plan in, in Strange Idols. Was So she actually, uh, so having this baby come out of nowhere in a sense is really what happens all the time. Babies are always surprising. And, uh, you know, I can tell you, our fourth child was surprising. Daphne was a surprise, but. Oh, yeah. No, for Christian, a surprise is always joyful for Christians. You're always surprised by joy. Joy causes surprises. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Okay. Um, Which you can think about that from now on. Um, All right. Uh, Why wasn't there a baby moon? For her, remember when she was leaving the, her birthing center and the, the nurse or whoever was like, oh, enjoy your baby moon. Of course, she didn't have one because, yeah, she was in control, right? She was crazy. Um, so, she, so the baby then, so this war within her of uh, surrender, humility, and control wasn't something that just kind of happened overnight. I mean, it was a, it was a constant uh, a battle within her, uh, which, you know, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, hopefully you can associate with. Um, yeah. Because this thing that was, that brought her joy also brought her anxiety. And it brought her anxiety because she was no longer in control. All right, so babies caused, uh, caused you to see reality, which, of course, is a little bit... Frightening, which then, of course, caused her to think about the creek way back when. And then by thinking about the creek, then uh, the babies cause you to question your place in the world. Not only this world out there, but the world that's here inside. Uh, and, and one of the, so she starts beginning to come to this realization in the grocery store. The grocery store fell away, and all I saw was the child. It was a girl nestled into the pink and yellow checked padding of her car seat. And then uh, the mom's little statement uh, about, you're going to, yeah, you'll have one too. And even though she's like, whatever, eight months pregnant, she hasn't really thought about him. Again, it's, 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 it's something that we battle all the time about our place in the world and how this world comes crashing down on us. And the ability to deny it, 
even if you're eight months pregnant. Um, all right, so, so then uh, babies cause you to question your uh, place in the world. And I, I have two other quotes here from page 57 and 58, just in case you, didn't have, you don't remember or you, you just can't, you didn't get a chance to read it. But her, uh, you know, she wants to explain it as, a, I love her, postpartum ob- obsessive compulsive disorder, if such a thing existed. Uh, that was, I thought that was funny. Um, anyways, the, the thing was, there, there's something driving, and, the, and then the final quote on page 58, and there was a whole, that whole page 58 for me was, a, that was, that's a great page to read and review, because she, it was, it, it, it's, it's where she describes all this stuff on page 58. Yeah, right, exactly. It, it, uh, so I just quote that little bit there, where you know, on a certain level, she was in control of, of, of her own meaninglessness. You know, she could mask it. She could numb it. But when it came to this child, she could no longer do that. Now, uh, I think a lot of parents try to do that for their children, though. Right? So, um, and that's a whole other thing to think about. But, um, uh, but it almost drove her over the edge, which is, which is a kind of amazing thing. If, if life was really meaningless for her child, then she, what? She, she questioned her own ability to be, what? A, a mother. A person, even. What's the point? Yeah. Krista. I just was wondering, where is her husband? <laughs> Yeah, now the thing is, though, it's a good question. Where was her husband? Now, the thing is, though. He spent two months at home with her. Exactly. Now, I don't want to, st- I mean, I got to stick up for the guy a little bit, but all this conversation is happening where? Here, here. Exactly. She's not sharing it. Exactly. Why is she not sharing it? I wasn't going to talk about this, but this is a good thing to talk about, I guess. Why is she not sharing it? Because she doesn't understand it, and she doesn't oh. admit it. Yeah, she's scared, and she's scared of uh, admitting what, though? This is the... She's wrong. She's not in control. <laughs> Maybe... Yeah, and, and she's scared, and, and Faye's right, so she's not scared, she's not scared just of like admitting that she's wrong about how she sees the world deal, but she's also scared of admitting about herself, about being a mom. Being a, again, being a person, being a human. So, holy smokes, they rock your world there, right? So, I think she doesn't want any more input either. She's, she has so much going on in her head, she doesn't want Joe to be telling her other things that, that the next morning she has to That's right. So, yeah, no, here's the thing. Some, uh, again, there are some things that we need to share, that we need help with and support. But help and support does not mean advice from people always. You know, I mean, this is typical guy-girl thing. Some girls talk about things, and guys want to solve the problem, right? Sometimes, though, you, uh, the only, who's, who's going to solve this problem? Can Joe actually solve this? No, exactly. She, only her, only she can. So, and I think part of the problem was that she had isolated herself so much. There wasn't another mom around to talk to. 
Yeah. You know, she was used to running with that crowd. Yeah, right. We're talking about, and, and they didn't. There's no world. Didn't the, go yeah. There and she, she would be alien. She'd be an alien. It'd be like an alien yeah. showing up in her. Yeah. You know, and so I think that had a profound effect on them. Oh, absolutely. And if you and her craziness, though, too. Kid, she was always feeling like an outsider. Most right. of the time, she felt like an outsider. That's right. She's got a lot to overcome, yes. Yeah. She was an only child, too. Well, right? She was used to doing things by herself. Yep. Yeah, and uh, so the thing is, though, is that she, you know, she was really, yes, of course, the world that she came from, she couldn't go back into. Because, again, she, she would be like an alien. Like, it would be E.T. showing up. This little baby <laughs> showing up. Um, and, then, and then, of course, for just her own personal background, she didn't have any brothers and sisters to kind of share things with. She didn't, you know, just, she moved a lot, so she didn't really ever have any close friends to share. So this was kind of her M.O. She always did things on her own. Um, and then, of course, you know, she was afraid, though, of Donna, Donald getting, her, you know, I mean, the, the crazy thing about the, yeah, I mean, the, the floor and all this stuff. I mean. My first child was extremely clean. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, any, so if you ever come across a first-time parent, you know the craziness is going to be. Is this part of you know? It's just part of what they have to go through. Every every new parent has to do this. I mean, I had to go through it. I still might be crazy, but you know, after a while, you just you can't do things as you used to do. Now, does anyone know how many children she has now? Yeah. So trust me. <laughs> She's not that clear. She yeah, and, and uh, yeah, you look at you look at her house. Uh, in the, that web series, you, get, you know, she can see. I mean, it's. I'm like, oh, hey, that looks, that looks like my house. <laughs> she made me feel a lot better. So, yeah. Now, of course, though. Uh, well, I, I, well, I'll bring it up later too, though. But uh, in that web series, she actually says um, she thought she was experiencing life, but it wasn't until she had the family that she actually experienced life, and her. Her perspective was when she left that, it, that made-up world and had the child, she was going to experience less. But it was the exact opposite. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, I think that's, that's important for us to kind of keep in mind, is that family, whether it be, you know, your own birthing family or your family in general, brothers, sisters, mother, father, nieces, nephews, cousins, there is something happening on a level... That is uh, very profound, and of course, I think very kind of biblical. And then you apply that to the church, and the bond we have with one another through Jesus Christ, which is even closer. That should really open up our life together. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, oh, okay. So uh, let's see here. Oh, do, do babies really have the ability to question our place in the world, our history, and our future? And uh, you know, you might want to think about yourself, but I see it all over pop culture. Anybody watch The Walking Dead? I wouldn't recommend not watching it. Uh, it's about zombies. I, I do watch it, though. I, I, I do watch it when I'm stretching after my runs, put the Netflix on. And, and uh, Michonne, it, it, there's a picture of this scene on the back. I, I, I did not make it big enough. I apologize. But hopefully you can kind of make it out. Michonne is a is a woman who carries a uh, samurai sword. 
so she can chop off zombies' heads, of course, right? Because that's the only way you can make them dead dead. Um, but she's a very tough woman. She is, she is uh, uh, by herself a lot. But she comes into this community, uh, which, is, of course, are, are these people who are trying to live in this zombie world. <laughs> and, um, well, there's a baby, Judith, that's born into this community in this zombie world. And, you know, babies at this time are kind of few and far between. But um, uh, the baby's kind of raised by the community because the baby's mother dies in childbirth and the baby's father is still present, but he's kind of the leader of this community. His name's Rick, which I think is like King Richard. But, um, and then Judith ha- has an older brother, Carl, Prince Charles. He, um, he, 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 uh, he's, he's probably 14, 15. Judith is 18 months. So Michonne comes into this, and she still has this problem about being in the community. She always has this tendency to kind of go out and go out for a few days, and nobody knows exactly what she does, but we kind of gather she, she has this, she can't be with people. And lo and behold, there's a scene with Judith where uh, there's this uh, babysitter, for lack of a better term. She's probably in her late teens, early 20s, and Judith uh, poops in her pants or something. And, and I, I can't remember exactly, but it's, oh no, she pukes up on this girl, all these carrots or something. And she's like, oh, I've got to just change my shirt. Here, just take, take Judith. And Michonne, Michonne is in there, because, or Michonne is in there because she, uh, she like uh, twisted her ankle or something and she's in this bed at resting. And she's like, no, I don't want to take the baby. And this babysitter's like, you know, just take the baby. I mean, it's, it's not a big deal. But when she takes the baby, she, you can see she holds it out. She looks at the baby, and then she starts to break up, and she can't take it. And she eventually brings the baby close and hugs it and starts crying. The baby changes Michonne's world. And from that point, point, point on, she actually, her, her, uh, her kind of made-up world in a made-up zombie world, <laughs> starts to crumble, and she starts to be in the community. And, and basically, the baby, this, this holding the, the baby changes Michonne's world forever because, and you find out later, she, she had a baby. She had a uh, baby and a husband who, of, of course, must have turned into zombies or something. I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't really say. But the whole point, though, is that, hey, the baby has changed this woman's world. Now, a more realistic story is, uh, I have two more stories about this, uh, is a 2005 Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Film, Sotsi, a South African movie. Highly recommend it. It's a dynamite movie. It does have subtitles for part of it, because they speak Afrikaner and English and Zulu, I think, or something. Um, it's about a, a, a young thug who is uh, unto himself. His both parents, his mother has died, his father basically kind of ran out on him, and he's left to live in, with the other children in these kind of cement, uh, you know, drain things, pipes, these cement pipes that, the sewer, yeah, what do you call them? Culvert pipes. Col- yes, thank you, culvert pipes. And uh, anyways, he, he's now in his early 20s, 
and he's kind of head of a gang, and um, they uh, they have a little breakup of the gang, and he goes and tries to steal a car from a woman. It's a, it's a nice car, and he has a gun. He steals the car, but this woman comes back and tries to stop him, which of course you're like, what is she doing? It's just a car. Well, lo and behold, you find out there's a baby in the back seat, and she's trying to save the baby. Now this thug is faced with the reality that he can either let this baby die, he can uh, return it, but then go to jail, uh, or what's his third option? Take care of it himself. And he can't, he can't let it die. So he, just, he has to take care of it. And uh, he, lo and behold, he realizes, like he, he doesn't know what to do. He just knows that he, this baby can't die. And he tries to take care of it. it it's kind of comical because he's this thug. And uh, he tries to hide it. But eventually, and there's some really sad parts that are somewhat endearing, but he uh, uh, finds a woman. Her name's Miriam to take care of the baby. Okay, right. So, I mean, it, it's a fascinating thing, but he comes, he basically, he's redeemed. He's this awful person who believes that he's unto himself in the world. And through the baby, he realizes there's more to life. And people can actually be trusted. And so Miriam finally says, you've got to return this baby to the mother and the father. So he goes with great confidence and returns the baby, but of course he dies in the end, but he dies redeemed. I mean, he, a, a whole person. He, he is changed. And he dies, though, in a very tragic way. He reaches to grab the bottle and of course, they think he's grabbing for a gun, and but it's a very profound movie. I, I loved the movie. I mean, it was it, it was one of those movies you feel like I'm exhausted watching this, but it's like a good exhaustion. You're like, this actually meant something. You know, this wasn't watching uh, Dumb and Dumber. All right, so, uh, oh, then the last story is this morning, serendipitously, uh, I'm, I'm driving to work here, driving to church, and there's something called StoryCorps. Does anyone know what StoryCorps is? Yeah, what's StoryCorps? For those who know. People getting together and telling a story. Right. And there are people that know each other, maybe it's a mother. A story that happened to them. I mean, it's, it's their, story. their story. Yeah. Or, or two very good friends. Right. Yeah, so, yeah so sometimes it's very interesting, and it actually is stored at the Library of Congress, and you can actually listen to these things. It's, a, it's part of, like, folk history. You can go downtown Chicago somewhere like the Civic Center, I think, and record. And you can do it yourself. Yeah, that's right. Um, anyways, today's story was about two uh, healthcare workers who, worked, who were working in Western Africa with Ebola. And they were there for, like, five weeks, and they came back and told the story. And I, I was in the middle of it. So I have to go back and find out. I don't know if they were nurses, doctors. I don't, I don't know what they were, but they were working. And uh, they told the story about a, a, a mother who comes into the clinic who has Ebola and has a baby, and the mother dies. And this baby, of course, has been 
exposed. I mean, and then uh, the nurses. So the baby, uh, the baby is um, Ebola. I guess affects babies differently than adults, and the nurses. So if you were really concerned about getting Ebola, you would wait, which means then the baby what? Nobody's touching this baby. So what do the healthcare workers do? Yeah, they cannot let that baby. Eat. And of course, what happens to the healthcare workers? Yeah, I almost all. I think they say like twelve out of you know. There's they die. Which is, I mean, that's a great story about how a baby. I mean, I'm like, I was like, whoa, crazy. Did the baby live? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, most likely not because, but the uh, and so, but they, they 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 told the story about like how they were more talking about like the the nobility of the healthcare workers and all that stuff. But I, I just thought this baby has the power to to do that to somebody. So all three stories very common how they uh, a baby radically transforms a person's life and. In all different relationships, most likely though, not your own baby, somebody else's baby. So it's very important. Okay, um, uh, but of course they treat it like their own. Okay, so now the last thing is babies cause you to pray. And you're like, what? Well, um, the first thing is uh, I, I wrote down is I wonder if I ever would get tired of looking at him. I thought about that. So I, th- I think that was like his first night home or something like that, which, of course, you know, you the four, first 48 hours, the baby just sleeps all the time, and then, then finally the baby wakes up and starts crying. But, um, or at least that happened with Daphne. I, I can't remember the other kids, but I know that happened with Daphne. Um, but she talked about prayer being an, unzer- an unobservable communication, which I just, that whole scenario for me just, Screamed out prayer. Then, of course, she gets on the balcony and she says a prayer, but she doesn't know what it is. She just like a quiet hello or unobservable communication, which reminded me of this quote. There's Ian Morgan Crown. He's he's an author, and but I I, I got this video from him, and uh, he's got a nice little quote. You know, you reached a place of mature. Uh, it's not an exact quote because I couldn't type fast enough as he talked. So I think it, I mean, but it's essentially right. You know you reached a place of spiritual maturity, maturity when you no longer have words to pray. You are brought to silence, and that silence that meets the silence is itself the prayer. It's just the being with that is enough. You no longer have to enumerate the long list of your anxieties and existential queries. It's just the quietness. It's the stillness where God is present to you and you are present to God. I love what Rollo May, who's a... a early 20th century uh, psychologist, said, we all search for the eyes that see and the face that blesses. And I think the image I get is like the soft gaze of the mother looking at the sleeping infant. You know that gaze? Uh, It's the tender gaze of the mother looking at her child. And in that silence of that gaze is what happens with God. And I've always thought about that when I heard that. I'm like, that's exactly right. I didn't have to be a mother. I mean, I, when I look at my child in a silent gaze, I think about that too. But, um, of course, 
uh, you know, mothers, I, I mean, this is, the, this is one of the glorious things about being a mother. Like, I'll never have that as a man, and that's okay. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I, think I like that quote a lot. And I kept on thinking about that when I read Full Wire's uh, experience. The question, though, is, is who is seeing who? Now, of course, the, the, uh, Ian Crone, he, uh, you know, he talks about a sleeping baby. Oh, and I did, I did a Google wet search, mother looking at sleeping baby. There's, there's like thousands of pictures like that. And then, uh, or just mother and baby, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Uh, but I didn't put them in there because I didn't want to make it more than two pages. Um, the thing is, though, when I, I think about it, and I think about her experiences, um, who's looking at who? Or who's seeing who? And, and uh, of course... Ian Crone's quote is, you know, that, you know, the mother is kind of the place of God and the infant is, the, you know, our place. But sometimes I wonder if the infant is the one who's holding the gaze. It's the infant's look that helps us see more than we see. And so who's seen, does the child see the mother more than the mother sees the child? It's kind of a false antithesis. It's both and, of course. But... Um, in your own words, how, how, how does looking at her, uh, uh, Jennifer Donald challenge Jennifer to no longer be an atheist? Uh, I think she realizes that, like I read before, that this kid is more than a bunch of atoms. And right. maybe this whole idea of soul isn't so weird after all. Right. Could have a soul. Exactly. Well, and, and his point is she's talking about this both with her husband, Joe, and then with the child, this love that she doesn't understand. Right. And where it came from. And that there's an and, unknown substance to it. Right. Hormones can't explain it at all. Yeah, it's, it's not Brain chemicals do, doesn't do a good job of explaining. Well, they actually don't explain anything. They just describe what's happening on a scientific level, which, of course, if, you're, if, if you're, the man in your life comes up to you and starts describing how his brain is relating, you know, changes because of you, I mean, come on. You're not going to be sweeped off your foot, feet, right? That's going to be kind of lame. So uh, no one talks that way because uh, it, it is lame. So that's why poetry is, poetry does a better job of those things. All right. Now, uh, in these last 15 minutes or so, um, the biblical story that I read in chapel was, in fact, Luke chapter 2. Whether you knew it or not, we were reading a Christmas story. And uh, the, 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 the Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Film, that is a Christmas story. Um, uh, yeah, so... You have this world, Luke chapter 2. Uh, you have two worlds. Does anyone know what the two worlds are? Luke chapter 2. And Luke actually writes this. On, I mean, this is, I'm not just reading into it. This is important. How does Luke chapter 2 begin? Yes. Caesar Augustus. So we have this, we have this uh, world. 
that's controlled by Caesar, Caesar Augustus, for most people believe that that's the real world. But of course, the Bible is claiming something else. He's not really in charge. There's somebody else in charge. The person who's in charge, that's, he's the real king. And of course, that's, that's Jesus. So you actually have these two worlds coming into the Gospel of Luke. And this, these worlds will actually be coming, they'll, they'll be butting heads. And Rome, well, you know, I mean, they're not going to let go of their control too easily. So there is a, a, a battle happening. And of course, as we read this, the real world is Jesus' world. It's the world that God created, not the world that Caesar created and is in control. So when this baby shows up, their image, they, uh, reality can be seen now. You, you can know now why your world is turned upside down when a baby comes in. Because there was another baby. Jesus. All right. Um, now, uh, of course, they have, to, you know, they have to go to Bethlehem and all that stuff. Uh, the shepherds, Mary and Joseph, question their place in the world. How do they question their place in the world? Now, you may have never thought about it that way, but let's ask yourself. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see here. Um, Mary kept all these things and pondered them ooh, in her heart yeah. is what I'm thinking about. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Yeah. Now, did the shepherds wonder? They say, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. We've got to figure things out. So, they question what's going on because the real world, this world that has angels and the heavenly hosts have come crashing into their world because of this baby. And they have to ask themselves, well, is this really real? So they go and they find the baby. And then they tell Mary and Joseph, and I don't know, the animals, I don't know, whoever's there, uh, the same thing. And Mary's, Mary's response is very important. She, uh, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So first there was wonder. You know, do I really know what's going on in the world? Who's in control? And what's my future in this world? Because Mary, Mary, Mary's, Mary's, Mary's programmatic for each of us, for men and women. Because what is she, pondering them in her heart, does, what, what would we call that? What does she do? She prays. So, uh, yeah, all because of a baby. Holly. I was just thinking about, you know, Caesar and the power and the money. Yep. And we've talked about this before, the humility that Christ comes into the world. He felt the shepherds are first. Right. Yep, lowly handmaiden. Yeah. Yep. It's um, but, but of course the the Bible is arguing that that's that's actually true. That's the real world. Yeah. That the the life of the shepherd and the life of the lowly handmaiden, 
is as important, if not more important, than that uh, Caesar Augustus and, and all that what goes with Rome. The glitz, the money, the power, the prestige, the fame. Uh, you know, everything that Jennifer Fulwire was striving for. Uh, she's real, the baby's coming into the world now. And she realizes there's, there's more to it. Marilyn. I want to know, though, because Jesus' real trouble never came from Caesar. It came from Herod, who wanted to kill all the, who killed all the babies. It came from the Pharisees and the people who wanted to turn him over. Right. His trouble that came from supposed kingdom of God, which it wasn't. Yeah, well, that, that, that's a whole other aspect. What do, what do the Pharisees say about Caesar? We have no king but Caesar. But they didn't because they never complied with him. They had to go to their own cities for the king. Now, so, yeah, the question would be, and, and, and when the rubber meets the road, who do they call out to? Yeah. So, yeah, you're right on a certain level, Marilyn, but what Luke is getting to is there's this overarching theme that the worldly power, which of course the Pharisees invoke, even though they don't necessarily invoke Caesar, they invoke this worldly power, like you better you better conform or you're going to die. That's the kingdom of the world. That's that's the made up world. But as Holly said, the, the real world comes in in humility and service and mercy, not coercive and pressure and violence. The real world suffers violence, but. That's a whole other story. Yeah, Krista. I think it's important that the historical part, too, that Jesus really um, uh, was born and that he died. Right. That he's kind of That's right. And next week we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, with, uh, when she picks up that book, Case for Christ. We'll, we'll, come, uh, we'll, we'll touch on some of, the, some of the realities of this, you know, her experience in terms of the historicity um, of the of Jesus, I mean, but um, but yeah, obviously Luke though. So he he's yes, part part of it is he's placing this event in real life. But of course, at the same time, he's helping us redefine what real life is. And it, it's it's by what what we would say is God's word tells us what real life is, not not history, but not to be cliche. His story does. <laughs> All right. Um, any other any questions or anything? So anyway, so so one of the interesting things about this whole this whole section is the reality that we have a story that we're so familiar with. And I wonder if you've ever thought about it in the way we've kind of talked about it today. I mean, I just you know every I mean when when Audrey came along, I, I have to admit I, I thought oh my gosh this is like is this what Mary and Joseph felt? And if it was, then it's got to be way more than what I'm feeling because, you know, they had angels show up and say some amazing things about their child. I mean, Audrey's amazing. I didn't have to have an angel tell me about it, but... So, uh, but, but I mean, this is one of those things, though, is, is, I mean, in my own personal experience, when I have uh, three... Okay, I'll finish with this... I'll have Barb... I'll finish with this story. So I think it was a month ago, there was a funeral for a, one of the church members' uh, moms who had died, and it was out in uh, um, uh, Oswego, Montgomery, way out that way. 
I can't remember, Sugar Grove or way, yeah, way out there, way out west. And uh, uh, this woman uh, who died, she had a granddaughter, and this granddaughter had, had a baby. I mean, maybe 18 months or so. And uh, I started talking to her and her husband about the baby. I was, I was fascinated by how, like, you know, their world had gotten turned upside down by this baby. They lived out in San Diego. And, uh, and just in the, in the simple conversation, I realized that they uh, didn't have, a, a, like, a, a vernacular to talk about it. Like, that. that they, they talked about the amazing thing, all, the, the, all these wonderful things, just like Jennifer did. But these people were actually, uh, they were raised in Christian homes, and you could tell that they weren't necessarily connected strongly to a church or, or to, to, to Christianity in general. So I just started talking to them. I said, oh, hey, you know, it's just like, you know, it's like baby Jesus. It's, and they're like, well, what? And I, I explained the whole thing, and they're like, oh, man, I never thought about that before. Said, well, okay, well, it's there. It's true. I mean, you know, it's... And, um, and through that whole discussion, uh, just a simple application of the Christmas story to their life, I mean, it was like, Pastor Brzezik likes to say, it's like shooting a fish in a barrel. Because <laughs> it was so profound for them. They're like, they heard all these stories before, they, but church never really was kind of like, it didn't, like no, these stories were just stories that never really were real or applicable. And... Uh, in this, I mean, this woman, she was just fascinated. The husband was just like, oh, man, I didn't realize the church had so much to say about things. And then we, yeah, and then I started talking about bringing their children to church and or her child to church. And they're like, oh, yeah, we should do that. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's uh, it, and this was just a simple conversation. I was just like, yeah, just talking. You know, of course, I'm a pastor, so either people like to talk to me or hate to talk to me. There's never really anything in between, but this person, was, they, they were nice enough to talk. I did feel a little embarrassed because I do have a necessity to just keep going because I get too excited about it. So I eventually had to cut off. Stop. All right, Barb. Barb. Yeah. And, and it was a, it was very different seeing a grandchild and knowing that wasn't our child. That right. Was like it was it's Christ. And even in prayers, it's my hope my prayers are all different because this is hey, this is your child, Christ. Right? Yeah. Well, every child is Christ's child, though, Barbara. You understand? So that that was the story about these nurses: is that it wasn't their child, but they treated it as their own, um, and that. And to be honest, that, that is every, every person's child is a child that's been a gift. Yeah, I mean, if children are a gift, then you can't, you can't claim them. Because then you'd be giving it to yourself, which of course is a lame present. I gave this self to me. Oh, that's good for you. I gave myself these sunglasses. Okay. No, no, right. But see, that's interesting, though. So what, what you experience, though, is what... Uh, we should experience with, with Christ himself, though, on Christmas. This baby, it's not ours, but it is ours. 
Now, of course, you know, it's, it, this baby is, is profound in the fact that he's savior of the world and, you know, king of the universe. I, you guys can figure that stuff out. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.